Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Longtime listeners of this show will know that it's been sort of a pet project of mine to give proper historical credit to Suck.com as maybe the web's most influential early content site. And so if you had asked me to make up a list of my top 10 dream interviews to land for this project, getting Carl Stedman and Joey Enough on the show together to discuss the history of Suck, well, that would have been pretty near the top of that list, easily. So imagine my surprise and delight when this interview, with Joey and Carl together, turned out to be one of the easiest interviews to schedule. And when Joey and Carl said they would only do it together, or not at all, I was equally delighted. This will not be a normal episode of the podcast, however, because for one thing, it's way longer than usual. And for another, well, at some point, you're basically going to hear me throw out all of my notes and list of questions, because if there's one thing I've learned by being a lifelong Howard Stern listener, it's that when you hear Radio Gold happening, you basically owe it to your listeners to get out of the way and let it happen. Yes, we do get into a lot of interesting background and history regarding Wired, Hotwired, and Suck, but eventually... I basically just let Joey and Carl go to it. Yes, I try to shoehorn my dumb history questions in here and there, but eventually I wise up and let the two of them just debate the debates of 20 years ago, argue about the meaning of the web in the modern world, and let them, in short, just give us some of that essence of what made Suck so smart and so influential 20 years ago. If you're unfamiliar with Suck, you're about to get a taste here of why so many of us have been such big fans of that site for so long. And if you're like me, a longtime fan of Joey and Carl, then you're about to get some of that old-time stuff for the first time in 20 years. It's great. Just listening to them debate is a historical marker in its own right. So smart, so thoughtful. And I basically call time on the proceedings towards the end and ask them to come back for round two. And I meant that 100%. I'm definitely going to ask them to come back on the show, and I hope that they'll accept. In the meantime, please enjoy maybe my favorite episode of the podcast so far, this conversation with the founders of Suck.com, Joey Enough and Carl Stedman. Joey Enough, Carl Stedman, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Thanks for having us. Woohoo! <laughs> Carl, uh, let's start with you. We like to get just a little bit of background um, before we get to the meat of things. Uh, you, you attended the uh, University of Minnesota, right? That I did. What were you studying? Uh, cultural studies, uh, basically hypertext. Uh, so I was waiting for the web to happen, uh, waiting for years, um, and then it finally did. Well, and also, uh, University of Minnesota is where uh, the Gopher Protocol came from. Did did you happen to know any of the guys involved with Gopher, or were you involved yeah, in that? I worked down the hall from the Gopher people. They didn't like me much. <laughs> um, 
But I, uh, I would go into their offices and say, go for, you know, this, it's dead. <laughs> There's this web thing coming. And uh, what they were working on at the time was virtual gopher, which was a, um, you would, you would go into your gopher browser. Did they call it? Or gopher, whatever it was called. It was a browser. Maybe it was a browser. And the, the virtual gopher was a, you would type in what you were searching for. And then you would go into this 3D landscape and it would zoom you around until you got to the campus of the university. It was all university based that had the information you wanted. So a search that used to take maybe, you know, a few seconds would now take a few minutes, but you'd be floating through cyberspace while you got there. That's so awesome. Joey, <laughs> Joey you, went to, um, you went to UC Berkeley? Yep, yeah. And what were you studying? Probably the same. Uh, I was studying, I was getting down close to the bone over there at, at UC Berkeley really trying to exhaust that resource um, and just glean as much knowledge as one individual could. But, uh, but your degree is in rhetoric. I got a degree in rhetoric. And correct me if I'm wrong, you, you actually had a, a previous sort of sideline as a, uh, a comic book store mogul. Is that right? That was my, uh, my teenage life was, was as a purveyor and vendor of comic books back in the 80s um, when I found myself as a sort of expatriate American kid in Puerto Rico, not really expatriate since Puerto Rico is part of the United States, but feeling culturally expatriated there and unable to get my weekly fix of comics. I, uh, I managed to commandeer a retail operation my mom had launched there in 1983 um, and sort of subtly, uh, over, over a couple of years, um, and eventually with her help change it from being a toy store into Puerto Rico's first comic book store and eventually chain of comic book stores. Would you, and that, um, and those stores ran from, they were around for about 15 years from like 1984 to 1999. Would you say that maybe, uh, interest in animation and, and graphics and things like that maybe led you to, to computers? 100%. As a matter of fact, that probably led a lot of the people in, in the Bay Area um, in the first half of the 90s to computers because that was sort of the dominant digital industry at the time. A lot of the people involved in Wired and uh, San Francisco people, as opposed to Carl, who, you know, he got recruited from afar. Uh, uh, those of us who were just malingering around San Francisco, a lot of us were from the multimedia industry or something related to the multimedia industry. And that definitely included me and my brother. And uh, that was driven by all kinds of desktop animation and macromedia-fueled yeah, but... nonsense of that era. The tech industry has gone through a lot of crashes. And right before the web erupted, uh, we had just gone through a CD-ROM crash. Mm -hmm, and so mm -hmm. there were a lot of people from cd right? Yep. Well, uh, Carl, let's let's go back to you and, and pick up the story then. Um, so you're you're in uh, Minnesota. You're you're eager for the web to arrive. It's it's arriving. Um, tell me the story though of the of the first time you learn about Wired magazine. Oh, you've done your research. Um, what is that story? Uh, 
I had a roommate at the time, Ben. He uh, he now runs uh, one of the um, telecommunication companies in China. But uh, we were both at the U, and he came to me. It was it was it was a blizzard conditions that weekend, uh, and he he uh, knocked on my door and he said, "Carl, you have to come with me. You have to see something." And uh, and I wasn't all that convinced, but he finally got me to get my boots on and my winter jacket. And we actually had to trudge downtown because there was no, you, you couldn't drive that day. So we, uh, we, uh, we walked all the way downtown. It was probably an hour walk. And we walked into a, I think it was Schindler's bookstore. And there, behold, was a Wired magazine. It was the first issue. And, uh, and I picked it up and said, hey, this is it. Um, up to then, there had been some attempts at writing about technology and culture like Mondo and uh, Boing Boing, uh, some of those. But Wired got it. Wired uh, not only had technology and culture, but it also incorporated business. And it was just right. It was perfect. Um, unfortunately, the politics were abhorrent. Um, but I knew I had to be part of it. You, had, you, you mentioned CD-ROMs. You had uh, previously been writing for sort of a CD-ROM magazine called Uptime? Uh, no. <laughs> Uptime goes before goes back before CD-ROM. So okay. this is um this is on a disc. So it was it's a magazine on a disc. Uh, the big one, there's Uptime and then there was Soft Disc and they were different there were different editions for different computers. Um so there was an Amiga edition, an Apple II edition, a um a Commodore edition. Um and you'd subscribe to them. They would come once a month, and it would come filled with articles and software that you could. You know, so it'd come on a floppy disk, and you'd throw it in and read away, play away. But so you you did have previous experience uh, writing about technology. Yes. And at the t- at the time that we're coming up to now, um, you graduate, I believe, and and your first job out of college is at the Minneapolis Star Tribune on their their new online division. It, it, yeah, if you want to clean it up. Okay. Right. I was in no hurry. I was in no hurry to graduate. I, I think I'd been an undergraduate for seven years at that point. Um, I still didn't have my degree. Um, I was working at. I so I was one of those people that probably would have shifted into working at the university full time. So I had a job at the university. I was working for the Center for the Development of Technological Leadership, which was an MBA program for, um, uh, like the Kellogg School. Um, and uh, where was I? <laughs> uh, getting to the Minneapolis. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, yeah. So, 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 so the Star Tribune announced that it uh, was going to launch online, um, and I wanted to be a part of that. Um, and they launched on the, I believe at first it was the AT&T network. AT&T bought them out, and that turned into the Ziff Davis network. Um, and I think Ziff Davis, I think Microsoft, no, it started as Microsoft. So it was Microsoft Marvel, which was then bought out by AT&T, which was then bought out by Ziff Davis. Uh, but the concept was the same with all three iterations, which was there were three anchor publications, the Minneapolis Star Tribune, the Atlanta Constitution, I believe, and the Washington Post. And people would subscribe to that, and, uh, and you would use your modem to dial online, see the newspapers, see the discussion boards, that sort of thing. 
But as you say, when you see Wired, you, you determine that, that you want to work there. That's, that's where it's at. So at some point, you send in a resume. Yes. And um, do you get a call back immediately? Do you remember the timeline, anything like that? Oh, my. Um, I, I, get, I get a call back. Fair, well, not immediately because, like, it took a <laughs> – I, but I emailed in a, a resume. It wasn't the reason I say it wasn't immediately was by the time I got a call back, it was four in the afternoon, and I was dead drunk. Um, my <laughs> as you are at four in the afternoon, <laughs> as as one is. Uh, no, my girlfriend had just died, and I was a wreck. Um, uh, so I, I was I was drunk, and uh, I, but a voice was over the phone, and he said, "This is Chip Ayers. Do you have time to talk uh, uh, about uh, this job at Wired?" I said, sure, but I'm drunk. <laughs> and we talked for an hour. I don't remember any of it, um, but apparently it went well because I had a ticket to go to San Francisco uh, a week later. So when you show up in San Francisco, this is, um, this is uh, roughly 94-ish, like summer, fall of 94? I think, is it, is it 94, Joey? I think it's just turning 95. Okay. No, no. Yeah, I interview in '94, and then I and then I start work in '95. Gotcha. Um, I read that uh, you you leave all your belongings behind. You just show up and put a bed in your office and and sort of actually live in your office at the beginning. That's almost true. <laughs> <laughs> I actually did. I tried for for a while to get an apartment. Um, so I had an apartment across the way. Joey Joey moved in. But after a while, it was so, just before a... we get before we get to that, let me ask you this, just so that I can clarify in my mind: um, Did you interview with those guys before or after Hotwired launched? Because I remember Hotwired uh, launched in like October '94, right? Yeah, it was short. It was it was it was shortly after, like at the point at that point they knew Bellendorf was going to leave. They knew. Um, uh, was it Michael, Michael Nelson? They knew Michael Nelson was almost out the door. So basically they had had that crisis of that. You remember the whole, the whole headbutting between Lewis and them. And they, so the first, the first uh, group of people were out the door and I was come in to save the show or whatever you would say. So, yeah, see, I don't know about that part because they, like, there was a lot of drama related to the launch of Hawkwired in 1994 that preceded preceded my arrival and precipitated apparently their reaching out to Carl and advertising for that job in the first place. But I only knew that stuff was, you know, anecdotally. Was the, the, Oh, I, I, I almost did not report into work because they made this dire mistake of, because they were so desperate to get up and running. Everything was falling apart. Um, they put me on the internal mailing list while I was still in Minnesota. So I'm seeing these internal emails between these factions at this wired start, you know, the hot wired. And they're arguing about T-shirts, like who gets a free T-shirt. And this, like the, the heat is, <laughs> you know, meanwhile, they're, they're supposedly running the website, but this T-shirt discussion is all out. And the CEO of the company, for some reason, is arguing with interns on the in internal mailing list. So it gave me pause as to whether I really wanted to go there. So what is your impression? You were drunk. <laughs> what, what's your impression <laughs> when you actually do show up? Like, um, is it chaos? Is, is it 
because this is kind of again uh, uh, an early real job for you so what's your impression of, of what wired was like it was an early real job but my first impression was that i was the only one there who had ever had a real job so everyone else was straight out of college and so my my first impression was no one knew how good they had because it was very smart people like who didn't know how to work in an office, but very bright, like the, the most talented group of people I'd ever worked with. Um, and no one could appreciate it, which really got me down at times. Um, uh, but I, the first day I walked in, I believe they were having server troubles. And, uh, and so that, that they couldn't keep the server up. And I figured out it was the, the, the power cable. No one thought to check the power cable. So I, I, I swapped that out and kept that running, um, which meant engineering didn't like me for the longest time because I wasn't in engineering. And what, I, 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 even though I'm, I believe you that that happened, I'd like to say that that sounds like, that sounds like a fiction to me, that you swapped out a power cable. Is that, well, that's like some Aaron Sorkin <laughs> shit right there. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, was, it, was, it was a twofold problem. One was like, so I didn't actually figure out the real problem for a few days later um, because it turned out they had a coffee maker <laughs> on that same circuit. And so when the coffee maker would switch on, it would blow out the web server uh, power supplies or it would blow out the circuit and that had taken one of the cords. Yeah, it, it does sound like a sort of yeah. scenario. Yeah, that, that, that doesn't make it, that makes it sound like <laughs> negative 2,000% less credible <laughs> saying that it was overloaded by the coffee machine on the circuit. That does not make it less TV movie of the week. Um, you know, one thing that, 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 that can, can I just point sure. out that, uh, that, that something that, that Carl's not mentioning, um, but that it would make sense to mention, considering, you know, that he, his, um, his citations of Mondo and Boing Boing as the sort of tech cultural rags of that moment mm -hmm. was that when he stepped in, he was stepping into a job opportunity created by the political maelstrom um, and settling of of political ideologies that was you know there was there was sort of ground zero there at Wired that was playing out that was the exact same tension that happened between sort of the hippie uh, aspect reflected through Mondo uh, the whiz kid aspect of boing boing and the actual techno-capable aspect of Hotwired that would eventually emerge, um, and the business-centric uh, third-way realism of Louis Rossetto at Wired. So there was a lot of conflict there in visions of, uh, of what the web was going to stand for. Uh, and it's not surprising that they managed to waste what sounds like a whole year just arguing about stuff that, you know, Carl might say that they were arguing about T-shirts, but I'm sure that from their perspective, it was about just the most <laughs> round-level political disputes that have ever been made. It's about property rights and who owns the brand. <laughs> exactly. Well, wasn't, wasn't also one of the big fights of the time just about the, the, the registration policy? Uh, initially, Wired launches, and you can only view it if, if you sign on and, and create a username and password, right? 
Yes, but th- that wasn't. Yes, no, you're right. That was by the time I came in, that had already been an argument. It had been settled. Lewis had won. There would be registration. Um, and then I, I don't know if we're there yet, but then I would bring that up again, talk to um, Rick Boyce, who was in charge of advertising, talk to Andrew Anker, who was the CEO of Hotwired. And we started a bit of a Skunk Works project to, uh, to, pr- to pull that off. To, to take away registration. Boy, you know that that's which is that's a good subject, and I'm sure that you get into that's a subtext to a lot of the discussions you have on your podcast, Brian. The the the, the life and death struggles of over certain UX concerns and UI concerns that were just really preoccupied the attention of a lot of uh, engineers and designers trying to settle these things that now uh, might be settled questions, but, but back then seemed like if you went the wrong way, you might be courting the most disastrous outcome and possibly betraying some special ethic that, you know, is inherent to the medium. Well, you know, it's, it's funny that you say that because I've had, um, you know, Andrew Anker on, I've had Rick Boyce on, I did a, a special episode where just talking about the first banner ads and, Everybody made that point. I talked about five or six people. Everyone made that point. There were no templates. So, you know, there's no previous models to work from. So a lot of the fighting is just about, you know, there's, there's, no, there's no previous, you know, case law on this. You're making it up as you go along. Yeah, I believe yeah. I have the original, the original blackboards that have the, 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 the ad banners. So they're just, they're, they're, um, they're foam core, and they actually have uh, mock-up, web pages with ad banners on them for MCI and um, uh, someone else. Uh, I believe I have those. I might have given them to Lewis. But so I walk in and I, I want to have this discussion because it's clear that the, um, for me, like there were, there were business reasons that you did not want registration. But um, for me, it was about linking uh, the web. You know, this thing that I've been waiting for the web uh, was about from, about linking from one site to another. And with registration, you suddenly couldn't do that. You, you would get, you would, it would just be paywall after paywall. Um, so I needed to get rid of that. And that's one of the reasons I went there. Um, but the first time I brought it up, I, I, other people were in the room and I was quickly shushed and told I couldn't talk about that. Well, I, I don't mean to yada yada over that that story, but I, I'm eager to bring bring Joey into the chronology. So, unless unless we're we're missing a bunch of stuff here, um, let's get to the point where um, you're con- you convince your bosses that you need to hire an assistant. Um, Joey, t- we should probably go back. Do you do you remember your first um, uh, exposure to Wired magazine? Oh yeah, definitely. I remember. Um, e- e- something that's also not understood very well because it hasn't really established itself in the culture was the degree in the popular culture and the wider broadcast culture um, and the kind of historical culture that we look back on like movies and or TV shows and syndication from the time, not that there are really any now, um, there probably are, but I, I can't think of them. But one thing that's lost is the degree to which we were living in a zine culture and a DIY culture and a small press culture 
from the period of like 85 right up into the internet era of 95. This was a time when um, Tower Records was a huge national chain and it brought with it a national network. Um, and a lot of the energy that, that these days would get expressed in Tumblrs and blogs and a whole lot of online platforms like Medium happened at uh, a self-publishing level, you know, taking advantage of the technological you know, backbone network of Kinko's and, and copy so, shops. Just, in, just to interrupt, I, I remember in 98, I think, uh, Kinko's opened down the, down the street from me, and I was so excited. And the person who was with me said, why why do you care? And I said, it's Kinko's. I can, I can write a zine. <laughs> <laughs> so go on. You should have. <laughs> and there you go. I think that, I think I, I tend to think that like about every year that this is going to be the perfect year for the zine revival. <laughs> and I should put it out. And it probably actually would have a better impact and a better chance of being remembered in 10 or 20 years if you did put out a limited zine of you know, 50 copies in 2016 as opposed to putting a blog. That's how Frownfelder relaunched Boing Boing. He started as a zine again. And then, yep. you know, then it turned yeah. into the website. Right. So, so, so um, it was not... It, so Wired didn't come out of nowhere. Wired actually sort of came out of that small publishing zine culture. And for me, the first time that I saw Wired was when they got their first office space, which was right next to my brother's software company's office space in uh, right off of South Park in the South of Market area uh, of San Francisco. My brother had a, had a, a multimedia authoring tools company down there um, called Motion Works, and there was an open space and that opened next door to it. And the first things that I saw was mock-ups of the covers of two different magazines show up in the windows of that office space. And they were Might Magazine and Wired. Oh, Might, right. So, 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 you know, every time I would go over there to, to visit Ed, and that was at a time when I was going there all the time because I was also doing multimedia authoring. I was doing animation, CD-ROM stuff, and that was, and so I was spending a lot of time over um, at Ed's business. I was also living in San Francisco, so I could we could see that company from the, from from issue one to issue two slowly start to put itself together. And even though I never saw them working there. I never saw them doing anything there. I never saw the Mike people or the Wired people actually in their office. You knew that something was happening because stuff would show up pasted on the insides of their windows. Um, and so I didn't actually see the first copy of Wired. I, I started reading it uh, when the second issue came out. And for me, it was really distinct from, from Mondo. And Mondo had been on my... Uh, radar prominently for the past for the for the years before that from say let's say 91 to 94 Mondo was pretty much it for a whole bunch of tech centric alternative culture for in the Bay Area they were out of the East Bay as opposed to Wired which was you know out of San Francisco and they were definitely more of a piece with the sort of freak culture you would expect from classic 60s San Francisco updated for this day glow 90s 
Um, and they did a lot of drugs, and it could tell. I mean, they were already sort of, <laughs> you know, they, they were oh, kind of a little bit burnt out. And on every other article was about some kind of different drug thing, and, and you could kind of tell. They, they, they were weren't just drugs. Seen... They were they were smart drugs. <laughs> <laughs> Smart drugs and also just the experimental pharmaceutical scene that was then getting started in in California, which I think has brought a lot of those people together, uh, where where they were just starting to do all kinds of weird uh, drugs out of the laboratories. I love the photo spreads where they would glue plastic, like disk drive parts or whatever, on on new models. Which made no yeah, sense that's ever. <laughs> yeah, that stuff was. It was, you know, it was definitely. It's not like it didn't seem corny at the time. It did. It definitely. It wasn't that far from watching the, uh, you know, goths dancing to yakety saxes. <laughs> today. Sort of, sort of looked exactly just like that back then, and that was also the the emergence of the rave culture. Got to factor that in there too original rave 90s in West Coast rave culture came up, and that was definitely part of it, too. So the fact that Wired came out, they were a lot more straight-laced and serious, but not in a not in 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 a in a boring way, just more like you seemed like you could have a conversation with them and that it wouldn't become really weird. Like they they seemed to 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 just bring a slightly you know, uh, more intense cognitive edge to their pursuits than just uh, getting fully lit and and and, and fucked up. Um, and you can imagine their utopian dreams actually being transpiring because of some sort of commercial or academic force behind it, as opposed to just you know people basically doing the ogre routine from Revenge of the Nerds and saying, oh, wow, what if God is dogs backward or something? I mean, like they were, they, they were a little more together. That was sort of like the John Battelle factor to it. I don't know whether you, you, you ever did an interview with oh, him. But I, I have, he, yes, actually. Yeah, he, he was definitely one of the straighter, laced, you know, more legitimate journalists. Uh, journalism-minded figures there at Wired, and 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 he kept them, he kept it, he gave it a good feel, I think, for that first year or two, made it seem like it, it was really balancing legitimate journalism with, uh, with 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 the futurism that didn't seem like it was wild-eyed futurism. It seemed like it was actually, you know, well considered. Uh, soberly considered futurism. Well, let's 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 bring you into into the wired story here. So, how either either one of you or both? Um, how does Carl come to hire Joey? Do you that actually apply? Like a, go ahead. I actually I, I applied. I mean, for me, it was a big deal. I, in '94, I had already started moving away from doing CD-ROM-oriented multimedia work, and I was already starting to do contracts for web development and putting together people's web presences. I'm not even sure we were calling it. I mean, it's probably just websites we called it back then, but that let me use all of the assorted Adobe chops that I built over the, 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 the first couple of years of the 90s and put them to work on trying to design web pages and make them look cool and, and, and throwing in uh, unconventional uses of HTML 
Um, I was definitely at that point in my life where I was trying to make every tag break, see what you could do with it. Um, and there weren't any, it, it was it, the only thing that I, I would think then was one, can I get contracts doing, putting together websites for people and, and, and get paid really well to do it. Um, or two, would it be possible to take some of the stuff that I was even then doing in the written zine culture and start doing that online? And I definitely remember talking to friends I had in San Francisco who were more of the print zine world and being really um, motivated by how dismissive and skeptical they were about anything online. I just thought that was totally ridiculous. So that, that made me think, no, this isn't ridiculous. I'm sure that I could you just felt that you could get as much of an audience for something you did online, if not more, um, and get more of a publishing experience than you would from having an edition of 50 or 100 copies of something that you were hustling through Fact Sheet 5 or trying to get into tower distribution or, and, and, and running off at Kinkos. So that was, that was a big motivator because that was also the first, 94 was the first time that I'd started to do some writing for magazines um, and zines. Carl, um, so I was writing toward the end of and toward the end of '94. Hot wired launches. So and I was, that was the first time that seen. <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead. Go, go. <laughs> I was writing an HTML tutorial book at the time, but I wasn't finished with it. So it was a struggle. I, I remember going through the first stack of resumes. And it was a struggle to find anyone who had any real-world experience um, putting together websites. And, and I really needed that for this position. Um, so I asked uh, Chip Bears, who was my boss at the time, um, if there were any more resumes. And he said, no. So I looked through my stack of resumes again. And they're just like, I think I might have called one person. But there really wasn't anyone there. And so I asked him again. <laughs> You sure you don't have any more resumes? And he opened up um, he opened up the, the, a bottom filing cabinet. No, at first he said, well, in the circular file. Right, right. <laughs> and I said, so there you don't have them? And he said, no, no, they're in the bottom filing cabinet. So we pull, So he, he pulled up this stack of reject resumes, and it, they, they were rejects for a reason. But there was one richly deserved. <laughs> but there was one piece of gold in there and that was joey's resume and i believe he starts it off something like um well you can kill yourself is that right or yeah you can <laughs> kill yourself or you can hire me <laughs> so obviously well, that, you know, that's that, the guy that, that you have to hire line-minded co <laughs> message composition you, you gotta grab him <laughs> love the fold right so, um, uh, Joey, what's your impressions when you when you get to Wired, Hot Wired, whatever um, umbrella you're technically under? Um, what are your impressions of the operation? Uh, well, there were a lot. There was a lot. That was a that was a whirlwind. Both, you know, I would say I, I can remember really well my impressions from the day of my interview to getting to the started the first couple of weeks it was it was it was definitely um it was it, it was definitely intense because 
it was a mix of people you wouldn't normally expect. I mean, there's, there's, there, was, there was a fair range of technical and editorial competency and design chops in one place uh, that I, I wouldn't have. I mean, there's a lot of pretension. There was a lot of ego. There was just like a, there was a lot of people there with a lot to prove, you know, and a lot of people with a, with with uh, with with, with real respectable, uh, personas, you know, that, 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 that defied simple categorization. <laughs> you should talk about how I warned you not to take the job. I, I can't even, rem- I, I mean, you might have done that, but I can't even remember you warning me not to take the job. Cause I, I know from, from just from the walkthrough, I remember just walking through. No, the, I, I the, took the you out. I, I, t- I took you out to the back staircase. And I told you what we paid. And I said, you shouldn't do this job for that. And just, I, I, I remember you, I remember counseling you not to take the job. <laughs> You're way yeah. too talented for what we were paying. Did you guys, uh, did you guys hit yeah. it off? Uh, yeah. What's that? Did you guys I hit it so. off? I think we did. Oh, I, I, yeah, I, 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 mean, I, I like Jerry. Go ahead. I mean, I, I definitely, I hit it off with Carl and uh, with a lot of the people there. It was, that was a great place to work. And the, all, all of the people there were, were, uh, were very fun. I mean, just having lunch every day was a lot of fun. Just talk, I mean, talking with, with, with the people about anything there was, was, uh, was always pretty thought provoking. I started reading Wired different, you know, I started reading probably everything different. I would, I, I remember reading, this Esther Dyson white paper that was published in wide in wired at the time where she started, um, this like, um, this her thesis statement on ancillary marketing and different, different, different ways that you would, you would, you would, you would, you would approach, approach the value proposition of publishing online and just thinking, you know, I really have to read this and understand it because this would be a really good thing to talk to about with, with, with these people, you know, it would be like Gary Wolf and Chip or whoever, just to see where they stand. I mean, do they, do they, do they really give a shit about this stuff? And a lot of them did. A lot of people there uh, legitimately gave a shit about all kinds of issues related to uh, digital publishing. So Joy mixed in well, I, I didn't fit in so much with the wired crowd. Who who do we get to blame then for the idea of of suck? Wired. <laughs> I guess that's technically true. Yeah. No, but so so um, I think about three months in to uh, Joey's employee, uh, he submitted a piece of writing to what was uh, what it was net net what was it called net. Joey? Uh, uh, I'm trying to remember what the yeah, name of the something. culture section of Hot Wired was. Yeah. No, so I, he, he, uh, hand off he submitted a, something. You'll come up with it. So he submitted a piece to the culture section at, uh, at Hot Wired. And uh, he showed it to me first. It was, it was a good piece. It was strongly written. It, was, it, had, um, it had point of view. It was an excellent piece. Um, and he submitted it to them. And uh, they rejected it. And I think he did that again, and they rejected it, and a third time, and they rejected it. Meanwhile, I'm having all sorts of problems with uh, Hotwired as far as just how you run, like, basic, largely UX issues. 
um, more so than than content issues. But they they were we also had some contributors who just didn't seem right for the brand to me. Um, so we were having we were both of us were having these frustrations, um, which led up to the two of us beginning to talk about doing something. Um, and originally, I I just the, the the name for it was, and and I I regret calling it this today. I. I I was young. Uh, we called it the hotwired killer. We, we didn't have the name suck for a while. And uh, it, it was, the idea was just to put something together that would show people how it was done. How it was done in, in what way? Like how, what, what was it that you how, wanted to how do? Anything, how, how anything was done. See, this is the thing. Like this is the, this is the dark side of the, what, what, the, and, and why I stress so much that you got to understand the politics of, mm-hmm. the U, of all these UX, UI crap. What that means is when you say that there's politics, it's that you have a bunch of opinionated people who need to stop you from doing what you're doing because that will ruin their idea for what they're doing. So there's all these people who are proposing standards and ways of seeing and publishing that preclude you doing whatever you think is your idea. And there's an absurdity to being in this open publishing system where anybody can publish anything and, 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 and anybody can launch their own publication and you got there, but they hired you because you knew how to publish, you know how to set up your own website. And then suddenly you're being told, oh, you can't link like this because you're using a link as a joke and it should be a primary. That's called a tertiary link. We only do primary <laughs> links. You know, and it's just like, what the hell are you talking about? It's one thing to have an idea, but everybody was trying to establish themselves as an authority. And it was like the allegory of the cave all over again with all these theories about the shadow. You know, this is a year in to, to the, the entire, you know, we had only had a graphical web for a year so. It was a little early to be making pronouncements. So it's sort of like it was, it, if it, it's the analogy would be, um, you guys are having trouble butting heads as a member of a band, so go off and do a, a, a solo project so you can you can get out the songs that you really want to be working on. I'd I'd make a Detroit I'd make a Detroit analogy myself. We go were ahead, trying go to ahead. Build a car. Go ahead. <laughs> Well, I don't know much about cars. I agree. I agree. Very, very trite. Trite, Brian. <laughs> I believe he but said no, Detroit, we were... not trite, but I heard trite first also. No, I I, I actually said Detroit. <laughs> but we were oh. trying to build a car, and we had, you know, at, at the beginning, you would have, there, there were different ideas about where to put the accelerator pedal, and uh, it was a bit early to be, to be deciding on that. So regardless, that's a bad analogy too. Sure, band. Why not? <laughs> but regardless, we can so, we can split the difference. It was Motown. <laughs> oh, I like that. <laughs> so no, uh, it, it was just you know, it, you you know, it was like an. It's a, it was it was just hard to keep your mouth shut. It was just hard to to be there when there was there there was there was so much encouragement and there was some the rhetoric was at such odds with the reality that you really was forced to ask yourself how am I going to go and 
be being paid by a magazine whose mission statement is about open access and this creative revolution where I can't even get something published that doesn't make any sense. And they're telling you, launch your own thing from the server room if you want, because we're just that open. Anybody can do it. And so you just think, you know what? I think I'm going to take you up on your advice. I'm going to take you up on that offer without even letting you know. But I will just... I will just publish my own my own magazine, and then we'll we'll let we'll let the traffic we'll let the web decide what uh, what works, and and even without letting them know, just just sort of having that the being twenty three or twenty four and wanting to have a voice, even if you don't necessarily have a ton to say, you, you know, you, you, they lean on you to get stuff done, so you have a certain technical proficiency sometimes that your own managers don't even have yet at the same time they want to be so controlling of the of the the, the final product you just kind of wonder well, why am i taking orders from you i mean i'm the digital native i'm the one who's i'm the one actually grappling with the html uh, why also, other than the fact that i don't have much go ahead that also extends out to the politics. I was like, when I when I came in, I was very aware that the politics tilted right. Um, you know, it was libertarian right, but it was still right, and and I was quite uncomfortable with that. And one of the reasons I wanted to to come to Wired, to go to Wired, was to to try to shape the the ideology of Wired. And uh, it, it became clear that even though my plan was to change it from within, um, it, it would be much more difficult than. I originally thought, and so starting suck was a part of a, a part of making that sort of political statement. So, am I am I hearing this right then that the init, initial audience that you're envisioning for suck is maybe <laughs> inside Wired's offices, or, or, or at the very least, its its goal is to poke at at the Wired culture? Definitely, yeah. Yes and no, because the Pathfinder existed too. So things were the. Let's go back to authentication. So authentication. The Pathfinder, was, the Pathfinder wasn't as pretentious as as Wired. Right, but here, here here's what was happening with authentication. So you go to the Hotwired site and you get this, and we should explain what authentication even is. You go to the Hotwired site and you get this. Uh, screen that says uh, login or join, or as Joey would call it, thread or menace. And that's before um, you can read anything, before you can read word one. That's before all you get is a logo, login, or join. It doesn't even tell you what the benefits of logging in or joining is. That's all you see, login or join. Um, and Pathfinder, so I'm working in the background to, 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 to uh, be able to pull that system down. But in the meantime, Pathfinder is working based on Hotwired's precedent to put that system up for themselves. So I was seeing, and Pathfinder and Hotwired were the two major websites in the world. So I have the feeling if this happened with both sites, the, the web would be dead because others would follow suit and suddenly you would not have an open web, which was a real danger. Yeah, I mean that's that's also a it's also a strange thing that happens when you suddenly 
have to take responsibility for your own output to the culture. You realize that, that, uh, the stuff you're working on might actually have an impact, especially when you're, when you're early enough and you're working in a small enough territory, you, there, there's a, there, there's, um, you know, you can, can start developing anxiety of your own influence. Um, you guys, when, when uh, sorry, when you, when you start, I think you guys, you launch it in like August of 95. It's just the two of you with, with maybe Joey, uh, your brother Ed is involved also, but it's, it's basically just the two of you at the beginning, right? It's just the two of us at the beginning. Um, I, it was about six months in gestation between four and six months in gestation. Um, in that gestation period, we didn't do much than much more than talk. Uh, I think we had a prototype up about a month before we launched. Um, but uh, so, so back to this registration thing, not only after you registered, um, you would, so after you get the login and join, once you logged in or joined, you still wouldn't see any content. You would get to a front door, what was called a front door, which was anag- analogous to a table of contents of a magazine. So they were using sort of a magazine metaphor. So you would, see, so you would then see this page that would tell, tease you to see these various articles. So... That's, so now we're two clicks in. Then you would get another click, not to see the article, but to see sort of a, what, what was it called, a splash page for the article. And then, so the fourth click would actually take you to the article. So one of the things we wanted to do with Suck, I, I really wanted to do with Suck, was you would go there and you could actually read something when you got there. It would, it would be content. There's no preamble. I thought that, <laughs> Exactly. Which, I mean, that is descriptive of a time in 1995 when there was all kinds of simple tricks that made you wonder, well, imagine if you did something this simple. Imagine if you didn't have three layers between whatever the hell it was you were trying to say and the front door of your site. Uh, you know, what if you took away the splash screen or took away the authentication or took away the, 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 the table of contents, you know, with, with all of this junk, which, I mean, for a lot of people, that couldn't even load. I mean, this was a time when issues related to bandwidth were very real. Even today, today people can get, get right, rightfully concerned about how many resources they're sending and streaming and bundling mm-hmm. and minification and stuff like that. I mean, Jesus, it was, it was out of control at first. There was a real, there was real cause to be concerned with stuff like this because. He, even in its early incarnation, Hawkwired for me was the site that you would go when you wanted to test the bandwidth to see whether you were on a really good connection because it took so long to download the giant splash screens and their huge graphics that unless you had a really great line, it was just not going to happen. So, I mean, forget about just natural attrition in your click rate, your click stream. Some people would never have enough bandwidth to make it through three pages of Hawkwired. So uh, you're you're sort of doing the the strip it down. It's just the simple and and in fact we should talk about the the page design of Suck, which is just it's 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 that center column and um, basically nothing else. Yeah, I mean yeah. it was centered text on black on white, which was unbelievably something that nobody had done because uh, um, uh, like many pieces of received wisdom that had not yet been challenged by anybody 
the idea that text had to be on a light gray was just the industry standard. <laughs> I was just trying to make something readable. <laughs> just wanted people to read what we wrote. <laughs> and and what are you what are you writing about at first? Is it is it tech industry stuff generally? What what sort of stuff are you writing about? Douchebags. Mm. Is that true? Mark Andreessen was the very first person we wrote about. Yeah, but we never called him a douchebag. <laughs> people didn't call people douchebags back then. I mean, they did. Didn't... <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Not Suck not... never called anyone a douchebag? I no, find that hard to believe. No, what, what I'm saying is, yeah. is that there was, such, there, was such an, there was such a sense of overarching irony that to, you would never come out and say anything about anything. It was always buried within the text, which was part of the charm. Yeah, but yeah, but I mean, it was at, at the very least. The least we could do is give is give grief to somebody like a Mark Andreessen, and and there were a couple of other specific players back in the day, many of whom have been subject of other Internet History podcast episodes, who uh, deserved being called out by name just for just being a little bit. Uh, just too presumptuous in laying down the law of what the web was about and what the internet was supposed to be. And so, you know, either that or, or, or bringing just some genuinely crass commercial, just, just, I don't know, just clumsy. There was some elements of clumsy commercialism that just deserved to be pricked, uh, and, and, and a perfect example of that was like the blank tag, you know. That was Mark Andreessen's first big deal. Was that that was, he, no, that wasn't Andreessen. It wasn't Mark, that no. That was not Andreessen. Uh, it was uh, John Middlehauser, I believe, but I might be wrong on that. But somebody yeah. that I have interviewed, actually. So, go on. That was a joke. Um, so, uh, now, I, now I lost my thread. Um, we, wanted, we wanted to write about popular culture and tech culture. But we wanted to write about it in a new way, which was it was it was my feeling and, and Joey's as well, that you had like people were going to newsstands and they still had magazines on newsstands at, at, at the day or or, see, or, the, or you know, tune in on the TV. And they were be told, being told about this great Internet you could log on to and do all these wonderful things. Um, and if anyone actually went to the trouble of getting a modem, dialing up, like subscribing to one of the ISPs or AOL, they would inevitably find there was really nothing there. It was all hype. And so I wanted Suck to be about calling that out, but also starting to, to, to lay the groundwork for how you actually produce content that people would want to read, would want to see. Yeah, because, you know, even by 95, it was, it was clear that simple, r reflexive techno-skepticism was a dead end, too. I mean, you think that that might seem like a more modern phenomenon, but it wasn't. I mean, there was Clifford Stoll was uh, it was more vocal in '95. Right. You know, there, there were people who were who were who were talking about just how this stuff was all overrated, and you had to ask yourself, where's the middle line between pie in the sky utopianism and just simple uh you know don't believe the hypeism right 
So how it, exactly. it seemed like, it, and it, it seemed like the, the thing to do if it was really if you really wanted to embrace the medium and do something with it, and you really saw it as your medium, which is definitely the way I felt. I mean, I felt like I had as Carl and I had as much claim to defining and standing for what the web for the for the web as a, any of these people. Um, that that you know you you had to be able to to uh, to go and uh, and just do, and, you had to be, and, and you had to be of ahead. the medium you critique. You had to be of the medium you critiqued. So if, if you, it's not enough to write about a film. You have to make another film if you want to critique a film. The, the same is true of any medium, including the web. If you want to critique the web, it's not enough to write something about it in a magazine. You have to actually make something that gives an example of what you're trying to get at. Well, what yeah, it, I mean, there, there was nothing, st- and, there, and there was nothing stopping people from doing that either. So it seemed a little premature to either dismiss it or to try to start, you know, writing tributes to it. Like, let's see what it's capable of first. Maybe it's going to change the world. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's going to do stuff that none of us really know. But there's, but, but except for the fact that there's more of a market for boosterism than there is for the actual product, there's nothing that's demanding that you proclaim it one way or the other. So it seemed like there was actually exactly. just more, there was more clearing of throats than actual, you know, going and saying something. So, right. so what is, what is the uptake to this emperor has no closing that you, that you two are doing? Like, um, how, how soon do you, do you, do you find that suck is, is kind of striking a chord? But, with but again, again, it's not emperor has no clothes. It's we're actually building a masseuse. Mm-hmm. So, Right. So the question still is... Right, um, well, or it's like the emperor has no clothes, but that's okay because, you know, we weren't looking for clothed photos. You know, we know exactly what we're looking for. And it ain't clothes. <laughs> so how soon does it st- strike a chord with people? Do you guys see, um, you know, first week, first month, like uh, uh, people starting to talk about it and things like that? Yeah, we saw exponential growth to, to begin with, which sounds like a lot, but it isn't a lot when you start with one um, or two, I guess, or two of us. But, um, you know, so within the first day, you know, we, we were in the tens, the second day we were in the hundreds, the third day we were in the thousands. Um, and we started getting press inquiries uh, soon after that. But there was an issue uh, to the press inquiries, which was uh, we wrote all the pieces synonymously. Right. Actually, that, I a question about that. So, how committed are you guys to um, keeping the identity of Suck, um, <laughs> keeping that secret from from Wired and Hotwired? We uh, we were pretty serious about it. I mean, ex- except for a couple of our friends, nobody knew. That was definitely part of the charm, and it also was trying to underline our our skepticism, not for the media, but for the media's profits because it seemed like the real brand that they were selling was their byline seemed like most people out there were basically going for some kind of incipient writerly careerist take on it and we thought that the best thing to do would be to subvert that by not even having your name so clearly you weren't trying to build a personal brand you weren't trying to get to 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 be the next negroponte you were just trying to say something true 
yeah, in the, in the early days, there were a lot of careerists um, trying to establish their own brands. Uh, bylines were desperately important. People would fight over, they would go top or bottom. Um, and, and we were trying to build a house brand, which, which, would, uh, which would do something else. So the, the, the pseudonyms uh, sort of help develop that voice because um, it, it, it is just, it's the, it's the suck voice more than anybody's individual voice. It's also yeah. that, so it's also a question of what's possible. The Sudan, the the, the, Sud, the pseudonymic tendency that people <laughs> indulge in to this very day is something that's natural and, and is sort of an inherent natural element of online. The fact that you can say something anonymously tempts you to do it, and it, it brings what? out a different voice out of you. If you scroll something on a bathroom wall, you don't put your own name to it. Uh, well, <laughs> I mean, that's, that might be true for you. I, I, I like to sign my work. In general, I take your point. A couple of just really, <laughs> really kind of basic nuts and bolts questions. Are you guys... Are you working collaboratively or are you like one of you puts up one thing and one of you puts up the other or, or like, is it collaborative or just whatever comes into your head? Super collaborative. And preposterously. Remember, so. preposterously. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, we're, we're both in the production. It was production exquisite corp style, actually. <laughs> so, so it, one, it was. Really, it was. Just like I, would, but, I would write something and Carl would finish it. Oh, really? And it wasn't like, oh, I'd look over his edits uh, and say, oh, yeah, that's okay. No. He took it, and whatever the fuck he wanted to do with it, that was, was going to get written, and then it was going to get put up. <laughs> for, and it was going to get signed by somebody else, you know, by some made-up <laughs> name anyway. So, whatever. <laughs> as long as he put it up, that was the most important thing. Uh, which, that, that's, it's, that's pretty collaborative. For years, it would haunt me because I, I was in the back of my mind. I would walk around and think, "Am I I'm a, am I a better editor than I am a writer?" Because I really want and like I had Joey, and Joey's just a brilliant writer. So I was editing Joey's stuff, and it was the, the sum was definitely better than the than the sum of its part. What what the whole was better than the sum of its part. But um, it, it would be years before I would um, go writing on my own and actually feel that I had proven myself as a writer. So Meanwhile, it, it, it was it, it did just a trick for proving to myself that uh, I never ever wanted to write again, nor did I have anything that I wanted to share with the world on an online media. Yeah, what is going on with that? Why don't you write? Because I, I just I just don't I don't believe that the proper use of the internet is um, for self-expression unless you crucially have something that's missing from the dialogue and you need to say it. I mean, I like people who go and rant and I like people who get their word out and I like anybody who, you know, plays their particular identity politics or the minority politics or has their say. I think that's fantastic. But just speaking your mind for the sake of speaking your mind online is it's like clearly it's, you know, where does it end? <laughs> very little of what you can actually say is going to be something that nobody else has said. When you get down to it, the real the responsible use. 
No, but it's that not so true that true. even before you make a joke, you should be, you know, you could, you could search Twitter and find 20 people who made literally the same joke beforehand. I mean, at that point, you start asking yourself, what is the, what is the point of this other than trying to say, oh, I'm here? And that's where I think your worth as a writer really comes in. Carl, now, I would say Carl's the better writer because when Carl writes now, what? The point is to win hearts and minds. It's always been to win hearts and minds. I don't think that's true. No, I don't think that's true. I think it's, I I think that the, I mean, it is hearts and minds, but it's also, uh, you know, some, degree of self-expression that you really feel communicates even though you go through life thinking that you're doing a lot of communication sometimes you produce something that is a higher level of communication and at some point in your life that might be editorial that might be text it might be an, an essay but um and depending on where you are as a writer, it might actually be something that is more like literature. Uh, and that's perfectly valid, but it, you, I think it's really important to, to, to know what it is that you're trying to achieve and ask yourself whether um, you're really focusing your creativity on something that's going to stand the test of time. Because, you know, we are not just going against Nothing one another when it comes to being creative. The sun is going to encompass the earth and we're all going to be gone. It's all pointless. No, it's not. It's not. It's not. No, I don't think that's true. I think that there's a counter lesson that you can learn from the internet that is that nothing is going away. It's all sticking around for good. And a lot of the stuff that we think of as just sort of transient is not. It is the bathroom wall scroll that is never getting scrubbed off. It's going to be up there forever, and the people are going to relate to it and relate back to it for many, many hundreds of years. You know, you think of everything as flying by so fast, but the more that the Internet progresses, the more I think the past becomes solid. When stuff comes online, it becomes accessible, and we, we start you, – you have to – assume the responsibility of the fact that you're a peer with everybody that's ever produced anything in the past and anybody who's ever going to produce anything in the future. It's all going to be part of that same internet. It's all going to be just as, as Googleable, you know? And so, you know, some people at any particular given century have come and have produced things that still get consumed hundreds of years later. A lot of people produce, so, you know, uh, 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 a lot of very transient. Joey, nothing, nothing you are, Nothing you, I, nothing any of us, well, very few of us will be remembered 100 years from now. Very few of us. Well, that might be true, but, but for those of us who do, you know what? It's not entirely a question of what we've managed to produce up until, you know, when we were in our 20s or our 30s. In the standard so, view so, of time, so, people's masterworks... So so 100 years from now, people are going to look back and say, wow, Joey didn't write anything in his 40s. What a great guy. Could he be. Did us all a if favor. I do something. <laughs> well, well something in a way, I do, <laughs> I, do feel like an, I do feel like I achieved something really substantial when I keep my mouth shut. I do feel like I'm, I'm you know, 
I'm, I'm, I'm doing something that takes a lot of self-control and is, and is contributing a lot to the welfare of my peers and friends. Yeah, I've, noticed that, I've noticed that people seem to like me better when I keep my mouth shut, but I don't know if that's doing anyone a favor. Look, the, the bottom line is, Carl, you may or may not be remembered in 100 years, but it's not going to come down to your, your tweets. It's going to come down to whether you end up writing a book. That's true. And the, nobody's going to nobody's going to care when you wrote write that book, whether you're 60, 70, or whether you did it when you're 20. The question is going to be uh, how you know how important and how good uh, is 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 that book. So, I mean, I personally might not accomplish anything. I might not do anything for the age. Probably none of us will. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try for it. I feel like I feel like the the, the real responsibility we have, and that the network demands of us, the internet and just the network at large, is to just find our place in the index of everything. You know, and you got to, and and I, and I think just understanding that we are peers to any every other creative professional that's put anything on the grid is it's just a fact uh you know and, and the fact that and 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 however signed on we are on twitter or facebook is probably might make us feel more like we fit in more but it's not really it doesn't really get at our actual life's work which is to 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 to, to produce some sort of creative or some sort of work of no, substance. When I was saying you don't write anymore, I didn't mean you don't write on Facebook or Twitter. <laughs> I was meaning I write a lot of job. I write a lot of JavaScript. I would prefer to write JavaScript than I would to write. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Code is poetry. That's what I mean. That, well, it's honestly, I would I, write that, that. I would, I would rather, I would much rather put my time writing lines of JavaScript than I would trying to get a zinger on, especially when, you know, I've worked with professional comedy writers. I've worked with people who, who, who do that for a job and it is a job and it's really hard. And if I had amazingly funny things to say, the last place I would do it would be on Twitter, unless I was a career comedian, unless I was a professional comic and that was part of my stage routine and that was part of my act and my career was maintaining a Twitter presence, then that would make sense. But it's not like a minimum requirement of being a participant in civilization that you're constantly manifesting your personality all the time and yeah, writing every but, funny thing you think and sharing it. Like it is possible Joey, to keep a notebook no, 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 of your wait, own wait, stuff. Joey, Twitter for me is a reminder of how insignificant I am. Like I'll tweet something and I'm lucky if I get one, maybe two likes. And that for me is a real gift. It's telling me that, you know, Hey Carl, you're not that important. You still need to do something. <laughs> That's, I mean, that's that's a real sort of like dark side, bright side look, uh, and I like it. It seems like a, it seems like it could be a constructive, a constructive approach to uh, to 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 handling being ignored. I, I just think that you, you know, like well, if, if you assume that nobody, like most things you do are not going to get are are going to get two likes and be ignored. So there's no, you might as well take your time and this do, the, and do the thing about. to get two. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 it's, it, it's very, it makes very little practical difference whether you wrote your stuff in a notebook or whether you wrote it on Twitter. The most important thing is that you wrote it. 
Like in the end, there will be a reckoning about Carl and your stuff will get published and your best stuff will get collected. You know, it, it will happen in the same way that Brian is interviewing us now. Like there will be some historians of Carl, you know that. So your stuff is going to get winnowed, <laughs> however terrifying that might seem. But, you know, the stuff you do that's good, even the tweets you do that are good, whether they got liked or not, somebody with a clear oh, eye is going to see them in the future. <laughs> that is such bullshit. But it's not bullshit. You, better be, write, it's not you bullshit. better be writing notebooks, too. That's all, that's all I'm saying. Oh, I keep, I write tons of stuff. I mean, I've written, like, if you, if you were to go and look at, at, at my Twitter page or my Facebook page, you'd see almost no posts. Now, I have written hundreds of tweets and Facebook posts. I just never post them. Because they get to the one point where either they're good enough, where I think, fuck it, I'm not going to waste this on Facebook. This could be an asshole. This could be <laughs> Or... <laughs> Or they're so dubious, I say to myself, you know what, I better sleep on this and see how I feel about it tomorrow. And then when I think about it tomorrow, I think, you know what, that one needs a little more work. But rarely does it like, oh, man, this is not only perfectly executed, but the perfect place for it would be on Facebook. (laughs) That doesn't doesn't happen that much. So one one of the great things about Suck was we decided (laughs) to put up on the top of the page updated weekdays which meant we have this weekdays. We wanted to create a, an experience where you came back each day, a habit, uh, an addiction, where you came back each day to see what we were saying. So, so we put updated weekdays um, up on top. Uh, I actually built a back end with, so we could queue up uh, the pages ahead of time, um, the stories ahead of time, uh, so we could schedule them and, and be sleeping at that time. It never worked out. It, it was like that for maybe the first three days, and then we were behind schedule. And so we were staying up all night writing these essays, trying to get something up. But it's it's um, important to point out that, that you're you're one of the first to recognize that because, you know, Hotwired is still sort of existing in this magazine model, like update weekly or whatever. But you you guys are are some of the first to discover. No, what we the value on on the web is to create a habit of people coming back and refreshing the page and and trying to find if there's something new posted. Right. How, how and li- some people have pe- people have pointed this out, but that's also slightly a side effect of us also being some of the first wired professionals. So people who had internet at their desktop at work, and you realize how much of a opportunity there was to play into people's procrastination tendencies. You know, if you've got an internet connection, if you've got a Netscape browser on your work machine, chances are you're going to you're going to spend some time on it instead of doing your job. Right. The, the, uh, the I, always ima- I always imagined, I always imagined it would be the first thing. Like someone would get up, go to their computer, log on, and the first thing they would do um, would be to read Suck. And I was actually surprised when it turned out that some people did that, but many would wait until lunch until they were at work with their um, big, their big bandwidth connections. So I want to, um, in in the interest of time, I'm going to alight over a, a little bit of stuff here because I want to get to. Eventually, you do get discovered by Wired. Um, Wired uh, buys Suck, incorporates Suck in, into the, the general operations. And so now you have a budget and you can start hiring outside people. So, so let's start to talk about that. Like, how do you, how do you bring on other voices in, into Suck? Hmm. Well, you know, that's sort of like, that's just sort of like the, the, the founding of any kind of publication. It's not super different than probably the staffing of any 
uh, blogs like Gawker or, or, you know, you go and we, we, we found a bunch of people, found some people who had the art chops, some people who had the writing chops. We took, we, we took advantage of a lot of people who were interested in doing freelance stuff for us. And, you know, we turned it into a little shop that, you know, could run on itself and where we could hire the, the people that we thought were the smartest, best writers we knew to, or the, you know, best, most available artists we knew to uh, do work for us and get paid. In those early days, Joey used to describe his dream, which would be to get up in the morning and log in the suck and, and, and not believe what incredible crap they were publishing on the site that was once his. So that, that's what we were going for. We achieved that we, pretty we early. We never got there. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, you mean like, in, like incredibly good stuff? <laughs> that, that, no. That we... <laughs> <laughs> no, incredible. Right, you, you, I, I think, like, I think both of like, it was, it was more true for me because I left. Um, but I, um, like, I remember getting up and just reading suck and saying, my God, what are they doing? <laughs> sometimes it was great. Um, uh, sometimes it wasn't. Yeah. Uh, Carl- yeah. It, it, I mean, there was, a, it, it was like, listen, one of the things that I've done in the past couple of years, and I talked with Carl has heard probably too much about this for me in the past year or so was in my cramming of pop culture, which I never stopped doing and is a lifelong pursuit for me. One of the most recent things I've done is gone and read the first five or six, maybe up to the first eight years of national lampoon. And, uh, and, and I realized, wow, you know, certain cultural institutions that seem really stodgy in retrospect, you forget that they were really amazing and had tons of great material in the early days, but also you realize even when you're looking at some of the best venues like that, the best publications, that every everybody is very hit and miss. Uh, yeah, and whether it's SNL or Mad Magazine, right. you know, you're gonna, you can, it, the, the amazing stuff is going to intermingle with the stupidest shit you ever heard. Uh, and I, I mean, I was just happy when I could stop writing the stuff myself. Cause I, I, I remember a lot of sleepless nights. I always feel a lot of respect for any of the people who do, who do, you know, the, the Gawker writers, any of the people who are just called upon to have some critical attitude at a day to day level. I just feel like it takes so much out of you and, and yeah, but I just remember going to sleep at night, just being so worried about what somebody was going to say the next day. Nowadays like, they don't even bother shit? to write. They don't even bother to write endings anymore. They just sort of, you know, you, you get these strong beginnings, these so-so middles, and it just ends. It doesn't. There is no ending. There's no conclusion. It's just, you know, I, I earned my fifty bucks, and and there you go. <laughs> But it's... Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm pretty forgiving of that of that kind of thing. I can definitely relate to the, to, no, yeah, to if, people if, who. If I were doing it for fifty bucks, you know, I wouldn't put out this work either. That is That's another pay. reason why I, I'm I'm always just amazed at anybody who writes a lot or has an, or, or maintains a very active textual presence anywhere. It's just it's a lot. It takes a lot out of you. It's a lot of work, and it puts I have no you idea out how there. It puts it puts you out there mostly 
for the worse, not for the better. Rarely do you go out there and say something that's super right on. There's like one Panahasi Coates and then everybody else talking a lot of bullshit. You know, and the, the fact that you can get out there and not retract every single thing means you're probably <laughs> doing something kind of miraculous. Um, you gonna put us back on track? Not, not really, because this is this is gold kind of. So I recognize gold when I hear it. Um, but but let me say this: you're you're talking about how you you said I, I don't know how people do it today. The whole gawker thing. Um, do you? So obviously we we can say that you know suck sort of set the template for that in the in the sense that it's this daily news stuff. But what about when when people? say that suck set the template for the what they you know everyone calls snark the snarkiness of say gawker or or buzzfeed or or the way you know the blogs in the web the voice of the blogs in the web today how do you feel about that carl and i have different they have different things about yeah. they have different takes on this let carl go we touched on that before um you know, i don't like it um for for us um yeah, a lot of what we were doing had a, a structure and a theory behind it. So, for example, in Bart, in The Pleasure of the Text, writes about how readers insert both meaning and pleasure in the gaps of the text. So when, when we linked off sites, you know, the, those, like now they, nowadays they'd call them snarky links. But what we, what we were doing when we linked off site, which would be, we would be undercutting our own argument. Or, or take it into a third space. And so Suck would literally embody an excess of the text and, and acknowledging it as a strategy for reading and understanding. So there was, a, there was a intellectual context of what we were doing, which is so much more than snark. Yes, yeah, I have a different take to it. I just think that like, basically we're all a bunch of whiny fucking babies. And that most that 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 but that's there's a tension going on, but that that's very well deserved. Like I think that there's a tension between being respectful and speaking your mind, and I think it plays out in all of the contemporary politics and our cultural politics. Um, and it gets really close to some of the core flaws that we all have as human beings and, you know, really wanting to be, have thoughtful responses, but being very thin skinned and not wanting to hear critiques like, uh, you know, in, in, in real life, you don't get like the whiplash instructor who will throw symbols at your head. It doesn't really happen. There's not really a place these days for, a legitimate instructor or commentator to be, to play the drill sergeant. But you know that if you're building an army, you know, there's, there's, there is a space and a requirement for drill sergeantry. You know, there is a requirement at certain point, you're going to get a lot better. And you know that the, that the people that, 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 that's the, sometimes the best things you can do for the people you care about is not necessarily to be nice for them. That's why, you know, sometimes you're cruelest to your family and your siblings. You know, you're, you're, an older brother will pick on their younger brother, as I learned. Uh, but they're doing you, they're kind of doing you a favor, <laughs> you know, because nobody else is really going to get into it with you. 
And I think that there's a lot of that suppressed critical energy out there that people just, they, they, they want to say stuff. They want to say how far, how unsatisfied they are with what they see, that they don't, they don't have the vocabulary to do it in a constructive way. Uh, and I think that it, it's just, it's a provocative space. I think at a certain point, it seemed like that stuff was necessary. It seemed like that kind of snarky tone was actually constructive. Now, when I look at it in 2016 and I see the, you know, the, the worst sort of gamer gate manifestations of internet criticism and snarkiness and just vitriol and you just think mm, maybe that's a, that's probably a dead end too uh maybe you don't need a drill sergeant <laughs> uh and uh you know maybe the only if you do need somebody to just be snarky i mean you just got to snark yourself because if somebody did it for you no matter even how on the money they might be you would just hate them for it anyway my take on that is criticism is to put something into crisis and the nihilistic impulse is to destroy everything, but only to build something up better again. So those are important aspects to critique and criticism, which, which is often lost today. And there's also, you know, when even, even the most simplistic dualisms, like the snark smarm thing, they, they, they do get at something. I, you know, I think of the internet, as a, having its own body politic. And I sometimes I look at discussion threads and I often understand them as almost the manifestation of kind of conversations you normally would just have with yourself in your head, you know, the chorus of doubt and disbelief and rudeness, like all the voices you have to tamp down from yourself that are always haunting you from the back of your head. They manifest as actual comments from these anonymous people you see on threads. So it's it's almost like like uh, people even the stupid things are speaking for you because you could almost see yourself being stupid enough to say them or think them or you can imagine a time when you believed that that kind of comment was called for or was worthwhile or was funny or was necessary you know you can see yourself at age thirteen or age fifteen or last week making that same kind of con comment. And then when you see it, you realize, oh no, it's just sort of cruel and depressing, but it doesn't seem like you're actually watching a scrum of other people. It's like you're watching, you know, all of the factions uh, from Disney's inside out having, you know, free for all, you know, there's a bunch of, a, a, a bunch of, a bunch of people who are, at, you know, different moods just sort of working without a filter. But, but we're moving uh, and, away from and, that because there's a there's becoming a one to one correlation between identity and and the things we say. So if you have to be who you are when you say those things, it's it's much more difficult to build the distance to actually say that that was me as someone else, or that was me at a different you know that that was me, but it was not quite me. That's getting more and more difficult to do. Yeah, but it's kind of like the way that sometimes when you say something and you don't, you you do not entirely know whether you believe it or not until you hear yourself saying it. Uh, you know, there's, there's that's sort of the first speaker liability. 
when people getting out there and saying stuff, I have a very conflicted relationship between with the shit stirrers out there. Um, I always disagree with the politics, but I do think that there's something vital about the people who just get almost mania fueled belligerent and argumentative. I think there's a place for it. I just think that it, it's become such a reflexive component to online discussion that it's that it, 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 it can kind of seem useless. But then I'll go and I'll find a YouTube thread and I'll remember that the real point in a lot of this stuff is people just trying to be funny. And sometimes they are. <laughs> in a way, I think I think that the biggest the biggest problem we're facing sometimes as a culture is that everybody really wants to be hysterically funny. They want to be funny. And they want to hit with a one-liner, and a lot of one person's one-liner is another person's uh, atrocity. Yes, yes. <laughs> cultural atrocity. I think a lot of the stuff you see is people legitimately they think that the shit is funny. I was always an advocate for pluralism, but I didn't foresee that it would become like this i almost was going to ask you that question like because you know in my in my dumb research here i'm always going back to like the the original days of the web where it's all utopian and it's all it's going to be democratic we're all going to have a voice or whatever and so are are you both in different ways kind of saying like it is sort of like a paradise loss that once once we do have this this great commons of discussion it's just kind of uh ugly Oh, no, no, no. I never thought that we would just because everyone can hear everyone else's opinions doesn't mean that anyone's going to agree with each other. It's just that something is achieved by having those opinions heard. Um, you know, people don't like other people's opinions by and large. And that, that was always going to be the case. Yeah, and and there is, there and I wouldn't say that I'm disillusioned. In a lot of ways, the internet definitely fulfills a promise. I mean, I'm a, I'm basically a fan of the internet and the web as it is today. I think it's a lot better than it was in the '90s, and I think it's a lot more substantial. And it's a you know, I'm a lot less skeptical about it today than I was than than I was back then. Um, and one of the things that I most enjoy sometimes is, for instance, going to a place like FARC.com, where it, it's, I'm sure we all know FARC. Uh, does it still and exist? And if you go to the politics... It does, it does politics, still exist, yes. It does still exist, and wow. I often go to the politics boards there because it's sometimes, it's the place where I found the most intense confrontational discussion between ultra liberals and complete, you know, to, to the, to, to the right of Mussolini conservatives. And I know that people, and half the discussion but might those, be people accusing they, the others of being trolls, but I don't think that yeah, I think there's more to it than puppet. No, they're all sock puppets. I don't think so. I don't think they're sock puppets. I think that some people just like have a strong element of sock, sock puppet to them already. Like they're real people and also part stock puppet, <laughs> you know. They're 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 no, both. True. But I also think that 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 you can't ignore the fact that there's a performative aspect to these debates that can be very enlightening to see, even if you disagree with both sides, and that there's and that that it can be really illuminating, even if the people arguing are saying incredibly 
risibly moronic things to have them put voice to them and have somebody come and take the time to rebut them. Um, you know, for a rhetoric major, sometimes it's just like the most amazing thing to see. And I have to limit myself because I'll read that shit all day. I, I would love to uh, just have a camera over your shoulder while, while you're going through Reddit. I mean, Fark seems <laughs> almost tame, I would think, compared to Reddit. Well, the difference is, is that Reddit is also a lot terser of a platform. That Fark is Fark's last. You know, people aren't so aren't of the TLDR mentality on Fark as much as they are on Reddit. Um, Reddit is gonna is funnier. You know, you'll, you'll like they're, they're, the one-liners that arise to the top on Reddit will land much more frequently than the supposedly funny comments on Fark will. Um, but uh, there isn't as much engagement with the mal, the, 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 the bad actors. What I like about Fark is that there's a lot of engagement with the, 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 the trolls. On Reddit, you'll see people just downvote the trolls, and they'll make reference oblique to the stuff that gets downvoted to oblivion. And you won't see it unless you're really opening up a lot of nested threads. I, wish I would do that, too. Um, but <laughs> but, uh, but uh, it's, 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 it's almost like on Reddit, the way to get in touch with that is almost at the level of subreddit where you follow subreddits that inherently are confrontational. <laughs> I think the funniest, um, most intelligent uh, discussions online are probably AV club. Don't you? Yeah. Yeah. They're, yeah. They're very good. Yeah. There's good stuff on AV club. I, I won't deny that. AV club, they're, they're better composed too. You know, I, I see people also sometimes with more better, they, they they achieve the dream of the um, character commentator in a way that I think Reddit aspires to, but doesn't always get. <laughs> right, right, yes. What about Vulture? Uh, Vulture never has. I like a common thread with a thousand posts on it. Mm, that to right, me is where the true. internet's starting to really get. It's like like you know that it's like something meaty if you can see like a thousand posts on it. That's why when I'd never understood when Denton or anybody else would do these moves to their commenting, their Kinger or whatever the messaging system, that seemed like they were always trying to tear off and shut down and silence people when I just thought, you know, you got to lead with the raw fact of the numbers of, 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 of how much actual activity you have there, because that tends to reflect that one needle in a haystack that people can talk about is isn't it is it odd to you guys that 20 years on we're still having that back and forth with audience engagement with with just basic comments i mean going back to like to pathfinder and turning on and off comments and things like that like to this day it's still news when a site all of a sudden declares you know in 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 puffy language you know we're, we're cleaning this up we're, we're gonna change the comment culture and things like that i can't believe that 20 years on that's still a debate that we're having the fact that it's a debate is the reason why I spend a lot of my days getting down into the weeds, getting down into the weeds of the Reddit API, the Facebook API, uh, you know, the YouTube API, trying to engineer, uh, you know, different comment filters, different comment views, different nested views, just trying to trying to find something that'll appeal to me as a consumer of comments as entertainment. Like I still feel like there's not 
that, that, that very few of these platforms are engineered to actually make the discussions be consumed as if they are a product that are funny to read in their own right with drama and personalities and highs and lows and twists. So thanks uh, to Joey. One. Thanks to Joey saddling me with plastic. I got to to write the the comment engine for that, and um, I just threw all those to- tools at the at the participants and took away all the moderators, and that seemed to work pretty well. Well, Joey, so I, I really don't know what the big deal is nowadays. <laughs> well, except they don't write the right tools. Carl, I Carl Joey, I. I'm going to call it right now because we're at an hour and a half, but seeing as how we didn't get even to the second half of the story of suck and then into the plastic era, even uh, I'm going to call it now, uh, (laughs) but I'm going to invite you or encourage you or plead with you to maybe come back again uh, for another episode someday in the future and either we'll try to get to the second half of Suck, or I'll just uh, wind you guys up and let you go again, because this has been awesome. As a fan of you guys, this has been amazing. Cool. Oh, Thank you. So I'm going to say... I always love talking to Carl. We, 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 we start, we, we've talked a lot more <laughs> in the last year than we have in years. So okay, okay, okay. You can, uh, I think any time you set up a, com- a call and get us and, 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 and actually organize it, you'll probably end up getting us back on the line. So well, you know what? thanks I, for the invite and go for it. I, I, you know, I, yeah. Obviously, I came in with my dumb history questions, but then uh, I realized that, that there was so much, <laughs> so much more interesting stuff to talk about. So I, I very much... Uh, like to have you guys back on again. My my absolute final question for both of you is: Are you guys are you guys in touch today? Do you are you friendly? Do you talk very often today? We're working on it. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 I we especially in the in leading up to the twentieth anniversary and over the past um, year or two. Um, we, it's been an occasion for us to pick one another's minds about a lot of old questions and it's been pretty motivating it's also there was a decade in there that we we did not speak to each other so it's it's been good that we're talking again uh listen again that was just building up that was building up story time (laughs) you guys had to come up with new things to uh to to argue about um Listen, as fan of fans of both you guys, that was fantastic. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna thank you for coming on the podcast. Um, and uh, serious, I'm being 100 percent serious. Let's do this again. Okay, cool. Right on. Okay. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening.